So is this basically our winter finale? I mean, yeah, kind of. <laughs> Honestly, that means we're just going to need to fill it with cliffhangers. You're not going to know what's going to happen next. Are Brittany and Tyler still alive in January? We don't know All yet. All the things. We, no, we, none of us know, though. <laughs> no. Hey, you guys. So we will be taking a break next week. This will be our last episode of 2020. And we'll be back the next week when we start season two of Blood and Wine. <laughs> God. Yes, each season is 137 episodes. Uh, But no, episode 138 will be out that first week of January. So just the the one awkward week that's like in between Christmas and New Year's that everyone's like, time isn't real. I don't know what I'm doing. Where is my life? That's the week that we will not be having an episode. It's like that one meme I found like three years ago, and I swear to God, I sent it to everyone I knew because it was like, you know, um, December 25th filled with cheer. And this was like a Christmas geared one. So it's like Mm -hmm. December 25th filled with cheer. And then it was like December 26th through um, like the 30th. And it's like fat, full of cheese. You don't know what day it is. I feel like December 26th through the 30th is just a perpetual Tuesday. Doesn't matter what day it actually is. It's Tuesday. Over and oh my god, it's like Groundhog Day. You're just doing the same thing every single day. I haven't seen it either. It's fine. I'll admit it. There's, y'all, you couldn't see that, but Tyler started, he opened his mouth to say, I haven't seen that. And I really just felt like cutting that off and just being like, we know, no one assumed you had. And I also decided to save you a little bit and admit, yes, I have also never seen Groundhog Day. I have seen bits and pieces because it's on TV all the time. I don't even watch TV anymore. Like as far as like cable TV, ain't nobody got time for that. I don't think I've ever paid for cable. I actually don't. I I have a streaming service and I well a lot of them and I'm good. But the point being this is our winter finale. What's happening? Yes. I don't know. You'll just have to listen and wait and see. It's uh there's a lot of definitely twists and turns and honestly, yeah, cliffhangers, I would say. You know, I'm thinking that's what we should name this episode, cliffhangers. Okay. Yes, <laughs> and we're going to pretend that we did all of that on purpose. Yeah, yeah, but no, that actually just happened right here, right now. <laughs> Y'all keep it, help us keep it all a secret. <laughs> <laughs> um. Well, hello, everyone. As we said, this is Blood and Wine. I'm Brittany. And I'm Tyler. And I'm actually already drinking wine. Yeah, I was good and didn't drink wine, even though I thought about it. Oh, I was finishing up the work day, and I just, I have a box, I have a Boda box sitting on my counter, and it was like, drink me, drink me. Like the Alice in Wonderland little thing. Oh, And I was yeah. like, you know, I could. I should. But I won't. I was wrong. I was wrong. I mean, and I was just like, yeah, I've got this bottle that's got like a glass and a half left. I'm drinking it. And I did. And it's gone. I just finished it. With that, I mean, I guess let's just hop on into Patreon. If you haven't heard about Patreon, then let me tell you all about it. So it's our community. It's our blood and wine family. You can hop on over to our Patreon page. I believe it's patreon.com forward slash blood and wine pod. I think it's a little bit hidden and hard to find. I know some people have a little bit of trouble. If you have trouble, just message us. We'll send you a link. But 
If you do find it, when you do find it, when you visit it, you can find all of our murder minis, drink with us, Zoom calls. We've done one. We've got another coming up in Q1 because, you know, we use businessy terms like quarters because we're losers. But it's going to happen in like January or February. And it's just an opportunity to get to know us. Listen to those additional episodes. There's also a few Bottle Talk episodes. There for a while, we were doing episodes focused more on wine. We did retire those, but they are there if you're interested in learning more. But, well, you you can always come out of retirement. Tyler gave me a look. No, no, I mean, it wasn't necessarily a look. I was just just thinking in my head about how, wow, we really are those two people at work. It's like, oh... They have a podcast. I'm just Tyler from HR to so many people, but I have a murder podcast. Anyway, that's where my mind was at. But I mean, bottle talks, learn all about wine. I talked about our podcast and murder in my interview. So, hey, that is just a tip for you guys. Be your freaking self. Just saying. That That is real. So definitely, like I said, if you haven't checked it out, hop on over to Patreon. You can find us there. Also, make sure to subscribe to us on whatever podcast listening platform you're listening to us, hearing our buttery smooth vocals right now. Hit that subscribe or follow or whatever it's called. Um, We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, Podbean, Stitcher, all the things. Wherever you find podcasts, you can find us there. And when you subscribe, you'll get notified of all our new episodes every Tuesday except next week. So what are we talking about this week? Well, what are we talking about? Let me tell you, Tyler, let me give you, let me clue you in so you can quickly pick a case. So we alluded to it a little bit at the beginning with with the whole like cliffhanger thing. You didn't know what we were talking about, but we did. This week, we're going to be talking about unsolved mysteries murders again. Paying homage as we, homage? Homage? How do you say that word correctly? I just realized I, homage? I think homage. Playing homage, Yeah. Well, as we do that to one of the classic shows that we all know and love and the show that frustrates the shit out of us because it's called Unsolved Mysteries and yet every single time we're pissed that it's not solved. I know. I feel like you watch an episode of Unsolved Mysteries and halfway through each case, you're like, okay, and then they solved it. And then they solved it. Where's the update? it never is. Where's the update? It's rarely there. I mean, they're never going to update it in the episode. They're never going to be like, this case is unsolved. Or at least it was. I mean, actually, I have no idea if they do that. There's like 400 episodes. I'm pretty sure they have updates sometimes. Oh, yeah. But they're like, this episode we had seven seasons ago. We have an update. Yeah. Well, you know, (laughs) that's not their music. It's not. No, but I don't know how to recreate their music with my mouth. (laughs) But this week, Unsolved Mysteries. Yes. But before we get into some uh, truly unsolved mysteries, let's solve the case of what we're drinking today. Huh? I huh? like okay. it. <laughs> how, how how has it been that it's taken us this long? That was a good one. So, Tyler, <laughs> what wine are you drinking this episode? So, uh, once again, for the second episode in a row, I'm not drinking wine. Excuse I'm me. Making... Did you forget the name of our podcast? <laughs> this is... I know. It's not blood and alcohol. <laughs> okay. Think of something better. At least like blood and booze. I mean, yeah. But that it's neither is... of those. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. That's basically describing your blood alcohol content. 
Our Blood tagline booze. could be blowing a point oh eight at all times. Oh God. Oh my God. At all times. <laughs> you know what that reminds me of? That one guy, it was probably like a Vice article or something that I read, but his body, I don't know what was wrong with him, but it just naturally, when he digested bread, turned to alcohol in his system. And he was like, I promise I am not an alcoholic. I'm not constantly drinking. I just like enjoy Panera a little too much, I guess. Um, I do remember that. That was weird. But okay, so what alcohol beverage are you having this episode? It's late December when everything tastes like peppermint asshole. So I'm gonna also taste like peppermint asshole. And we're making a peppermint white Russian. What all is in that? I've never had a white Russian. So, um, white Russian is one of those things that when I think about it, it grosses me out because it's vodka and milk, but it's actually really good. Obviously, I'm not making it with real milk, but for work, we did a virtual holiday party, and for part of it was white elephant, where you get a secret person, and you can send them, like, lunch or cookies or whatever, and my boss pulled my name and sent me all the makings for a peppermint white Russian. So I'm going to share the recipe with y'all. And he also included a thing of half and half. And I was like, oh, honey, no. So I'm using some coconut creamer from Trader Joe's that Brittany left when she was here. It's like the best creamer. If you're looking for a non-dairy creamer that, to be honest, it doesn't taste like coconut, it's perfect. It's the best. I've still never found anything that's like it. So, also, it makes a great replacement for something like half and half. So, the actual recipe says one shot vodka, one shot peppermint schnapps, one shot Kahlua, and then one shot of creamer, and that sounds terrifying. So, I'm going to instead make it with just like, I don't know, pour some creamer over ice. That's a third of the way up the glass or so. We're turning this into Tyler's cocktail hour. I mean, I think that sounds like a mighty fine plan. I wish I had stuff to make a cocktail. This sounds really good. It is. I've had a couple. My booze collection's about half gone. <laughs> um, and then I'm going to top it off. I realized I grabbed a massive shot glass, so toot skadoot, here we are. What? I don't know. Pep- so I just added one full shot of peppermint schnapps. One overflowing shot of vodka. A really big shot of vodka. Going in. And the knowledge that I don't know if this cup is big enough, because now we have one shot of Kahlua. And the recipe says to stir it with a candy cane. I'm going to stir it with my metal reusable straw. And actually, I have a cup that I'm going to kind of bartender it. You know, dump and transfer. No, that's a good idea. And don't laugh that it's a Panda Express cup. (laughs) Because I wanted one that was big, so it would, like, swish-swash, and this is the size of my hand. That glass was perfect. Also, you're using, like, that's a pint glass. Yeah. That's a, that's a big cocktail, dude. Well, it's three shots. It <laughs> <laughs> kind of has to be. And just like that, there we go. We are ready to get holiday sloshed. And oh, I guess I can't taste it yet. No. Because you have to like open yours. Well, damn it. <laughs> okay. Well, anyways, let me recap for you. Again, this was ice in a glass, some creamer, 
or milk or half and half if your body can handle. A shot of peppermint schnapps, a shot of Kahlua, a shot of vodka. I suggest something like Tito's that's not gonna like burn your face off, but is not expensive. And then swash it between glasses. The thing is, the thing why cocktails like this you don't really want to stir is if you just stir it, you're not gonna mix it. So you're gonna get some sips that you're like, oh, this tastes like nothing. And then some sips where you're like, I just got vodka in that. Because, you know, density and shit. But yes, that is my peppermint white Russian. I am ready to go. I have enough for, I don't know, three or four more. Who knows what's happening tonight, y'all. But Brittany, you actually brought the wine to this episode of Blood and Wine. So uh, what are you drinking today? So I picked one that I just realized I didn't look to see if we've already done this. I don't think we have, but it is one a lot of people will probably find pretty familiar. It's the 2018 Line 39 Cabernet Sauvignon from Lodi, California. So Ty, this is the label. Oh, I've had that. Yeah. It's one that you can find at most retailers for between eight to ten dollars. I got mine for like nine or ten at Whole Foods. Line 39 is actually inspired by the 39th parallel, which runs through the heart of California wine country. And at Line 39, like at the winery, they pick grapes from the best growing regions throughout California to craft a range of exclusive wines. They have a lot of different reds. They have some whites. Again, they're a pretty well-known, pretty extensive winery. But I felt like going with like your classic cab. I almost got the Pinot Noir, but I was like, you know what? Tonight, I'm feeling like a cab. I'm feeling like closing out 2020 with a classic. At least one that used to be my favorite. Like California cabs, you guys know, 130 mm-hmm. ep- 137 episodes ago, I would not shut up about California cabs the same way I now won't shut up about Bordeaux. So. <laughs> wow. Hey, it is a timeline in Brittany's wine palette. But this wine in particular, it has rich fruit flavors, currant, blackberry, some hints of pepper, and very subtle tannins. It is made in stainless steel fermentation, and then it's aged in French and American oak. So starts out in the steel, moves to the oak. We're going to have some of those oaky notes that um, we all know and love in our California cabs. Mm -hmm. And if you're looking for something to have this with, classic cab fare. You want (laughs) cab fare, $20. I know. (laughs) So like 85 cents every quarter mile. That's that goes great with this wine. (laughs) Uh huh. Uh huh. You drink this in the back of a cab, the cab in a cab. No. Oh oh my God. That's our new talk show. (laughs) Cab in a cab. Honestly, Netflix, get ready. Book us on it. It's like that one game where you would like hop in and have to, cab. Yeah, you would have to answer all these questions. But this one, you try different cabs in the cabs. Yeah. Anyway, it goes really well with braised short ribs, garlic mashed potatoes, a slow cooked pork shoulder. So it's really good with a lot of your heartier meats, like all cabs are. And it is a regular cork. So I'm just getting the metal off. I need a new foil cutter because. Do you know how many times I'm tired of cutting myself on the foil? It happens all the time. And I feel like that means I'm this wine amateur. And I'm like, Brittany, you're better than this. Stop cutting yourself on the damn foil. 
Well, I mean, the wine opener has the little mini knife at the back. At the Have I never shown you? I mean, granted, I had to take wine classes on how to not slice your finger off with the foil. Tyler, I can show you. I used the little wine knife on the thing. No, I know. But there's a specific way of doing it so where you don't slice your finger. Well, next time on Blood and Wine, we'll learn <laughs> if Brittany can stop cutting herself. The first of our mini cliffhangers this episode. <laughs> All right, let's pour her. It's a her. Yeah, makes sense. Assign gender roles to wine. You can tell it's been oaked just by the way it smells. That blackberry, that currant, the leather, the little hints of baking spices. This one, the tannins are not going to be too strong. There's something in the way I'm smelling it. Something about the way this wine (laughs) smells is telling me it's not going to bite. Also, it doesn't have teeth. So that's another thing. It's going to gum you. Nom, nom, nom. That's nasty. Okay, let's cheers. (laughs) Let's cheers. Cheers to 2020 being over, dude. We we made it. Y'all, we made it through 2020. If you're listening to this now, you're about to make it through 2020. I guess we can't say that yet. There's still an amount of days left. This is 2020. I think you just jinxed us. If something happens, I'm blaming it on you. No, this is 2020 signing off with this cheers. It's officially 2021. I think that's how it works now. I mean, it's 2020. We can make shit up. I agree. Cheers. Cheers. It's a little strong. You okay there? Well, just for me, how I know when my drinks are too strong, even though, you know, last episode I was talking about my golden margaritas that I don't actually make. <laughs> For me, I can tell a drink is a little strong when it's an iced drink, when it's cold, but there's enough alcohol in it that it hits your tongue and it's warm. Yeah, like instant warming. It's like, oh, this is my heater in a glass. Yeah, it's like it. it's an iced drink that burns a little bit going down. That's when, you know, it's a little strong. Also, coconut creamer does not have the fats and stuff that take away a lot of the kick from vodka. Good point. That you'll get from you know, half and half or heavy cream. So if you can drink milk, by all means, go for it. This is really good, though. I'm going to keep sipping on it because it's at a strong enough level that I'm like, oh, by the time I'm halfway to two thirds of the way done with this one, I'm not going to notice it. But it's really nice. It has a very nice, just creamy, pepperminty, feels like the holidays. Um, the Kahlua doesn't add like a coffee, coffee punch, but it adds a little bit of depth, almost like a like a hint of chocolate, like someone who's sitting behind you is eating chocolate, like that that amount of chocolate flavor. How much peppermint would you say there is? Because I know peppermint is one of those things you either like it or you hate it. So is it like super pepperminty? Does it feel like you're eating a candy cane or is it more like you're having like a peppermint tea where it's more subtle? I mean, it's schnapps, so it's not super subtle. It's kind of like having... Um, a peppermint mocha? Yeah. Well, yeah. Minus or, the mocha? Or like a piece of peppermint bark. I Where love it's just, I mean, it's bark. like white chocolate with like a... Of candy cane. So it's not crazy pepperminty. I don't like have my sinuses cleared by peppermint. You know, it's great. So yeah, I highly suggest if y'all are into peppermint and vodka and creamy drinks... Uh, This is a great one to make, and it's a great cocktail to, like, have in your back pocket because it's four things. It's schnapps, vodka, Kahlua, and then some kind of dairy or non-dairy 
cream. Super easy. It tastes a lot fancier than it is. So if you're like, oh shit, something for the holiday party, something for the New Year's party, this is a great one to have. Maybe not for New Year's because I feel like topping this with champagne would destroy your stomach. That does not sound like a good idea, but you did really make me want a chocolate martini. I bet there's a peppermint chocolate martini. Oh, yeah. I bet. I mean, you put peppermint schnapps in anything and it turns into a peppermint. This is a classic cab. This is one of those cabs you can't go wrong. This is better than some of your 8 to $10 cabs that you can get. I'm not going to name any names, but we all know the ones that are just like your basic cab, nothing special. This is better than that. It's really smooth. You really do get that blackberry, those hints of pepper, the tannins, like I said, they're very subtle. This is not a wine that bites. It apparently gums, as Tyler said. And um, except it's not even doing that because it's not it's not here to fight you. It's for you to enjoy it. I definitely recommend if you have not had the Line 39 cab, go go get it. It's a great one. It's better than, like I said, some of the other ones you can buy in the price range. So if you're wanting a wine that is more of a top quality, lower cost wine, Definitely. There's a reason this wine is everywhere. And Lodi, California has some fantastic cabs coming out of that region. We've talked about them. It's probably been a while. I believe, isn't Michael David in that winery in the Lodi area? I think so. That sounds right. Actually, yes, I know it's right because that's Earthquake Cab has a thing on the back talking about Lodi. Yeah. And so that's a Michael David wine. We we love Michael David wines. Line 39 is not one of them, but it is that same region. Um, Michael mm-hmm. David, their wines are more in that 15 to 25 range. So if you're wanting one from that same region, Line 39, I think it's a good go-to. Nice. Okay, Tyler, we've talked about my wine and your cocktail. Tell us about your unsolved mystery. So the case I'm doing today, my unsolved mystery, is the murder of Dorothy Jane Scott. And this case, it has a page on the Unsolved Mysteries wiki, but it also has a note on that page that no one was able to find what episode it's from, and that it may not have ever actually been on Unsolved Mysteries. So it was like one of those collective memories that everyone has but may not be real? Yeah, it's the Bernstein Bears of Murders. Because they're what, the Baron Stain Bears? And we're all like, yeah. what the fuck is that? Stain? No. But one of the sources I used was the Unsolved Mysteries wiki page. I also used the Wikipedia page for the murder of Dorothy Jane Scott. And then an article on TNT Crimes. So Dorothy Jane Scott, she's a single mother. She lives in Stanton, California at her aunt's house with her four-year-old son, Sean. In 1980, Dorothy is 32. She's a secretary at two, like, jointly-owned stores in Anaheim. One, I think they're, like, right next to each other. One of them sells, like, psychedelic items, like love beads and lava lamps. And the other's a head shop that sells, like, pipes and bongs and stuff. So you can get why they're probably right next door to each other and owned by the same people. You get your bong and then you get your lava lamp. Totally. One influences the other. One-stop shop. So Dorothy was the kind of person, she was a little more introverted. She preferred staying home with her son. She was a pretty devout Christian. She didn't really drink. She didn't do drugs. I don't know. Was like a good average person. Stuck to herself. Did her own thing. 
her parents who lived in Anaheim, which wasn't too far from Stanton and is, you know, the same town that she worked in. When she would go to work, they would babysit for their grandson. And Dorothy, while she may have sometimes dated on occasion, she really had no steady boyfriend that anyone in the family knew of. So in the months before what I'm about to go into happened, Dorothy had been getting a lot of very strange phone calls at work from this unidentified guy. No, I don't like that. That sounds creepy. It's so creepy. And I I will very shortly get into how creepy it is. So he would call and alternatively, sometimes he would profess his love for her. And then sometimes he would profess his intent to kill her. Wow, okay, those are two very, very extremely different sides of the spectrum. I mean, yeah, she's sitting at work. She's the secretary, so she has to answer all the phones. And sometimes he's like, oh, baby, I love you. But then other times he's like, oh, I'm going to stab you in the throat. Is that how straight guys sound? No, that's how scary people sound. Well, then it fits. One of these calls, he told her to go outside because he had something for her. So he he calls and he's like, come outside, I've got something for you. And she does, I guess. And she finds a single dead rose on the windshield of her car. And that's a fucking creepy omen. That's not a good sign. Why does someone give you a dead rose? Men are awful. I agree. Because I could totally see some dude bro being like, that's fucking romantic, yo. No, it's It's not. That's scary as shit. You're not a cat. Don't leave dead things as presents for people. I don't want, like, a rat or a dead rose on my doorstep. Another call that he made, he told her that he would get her alone and cut her up into bits so no one would ever find her. What in the fuck is wrong with this guy? A lot. I mean, because of these calls, because of everything going on, Dorothy had been considering getting herself a handgun, and that was not like her at all. She was not the kind of person that would ever own a gun. But because of this, she's like, oh my god, do I need to fucking get a gun? I mean, she even started taking, like, karate lessons for self-defense. Yeah. So now we flash forward to May 28th of 1980. So those calls had been happening in, like, the months before this, Now we're on my birthday 13 years before I'm born. Dorothy, there's like a late meeting at work. It's like a a 9 p.m. work meeting that she has to go to. And so she drops Sean, her son, off at her parents' house in Anaheim. And then she goes into work, to the work meeting. And at the meeting, one of her co-workers, this guy named Conrad Bostrin, he was not looking very well. He was like looking real sick and stuff. And Dorothy's like... Conrad, you good? You're not doing too well. And then what kind of sounds like very, almost if it was written in a dramatic TV show, it would be overdramatic. He pulls up his shirt and he has this giant red mark on his arm. And then he like kind of collapses. And so Dorothy's like, oh shit. Oh no. So her and another one of her coworkers, Pam Head, they take Conrad to the hospital. Your case just took this weird sci-fi infectious disease, like, unsolved, crazy illness turn that I did not see coming. I'm really confused right now. Well, this this gets solved pretty clearly. It's still weird as shit, but it gets solved pretty quickly. Dorothy and Pam, they're taking Conrad to the hospital, and on the way to the hospital... 
they stop by Dorothy's parents' house because she and Sutton are like, hey, we're taking him to the hospital. I'm going to be late picking up Sean. So, like, sorry, Conrad's got to go to the hospital. And also, while she's at the house, she changed scarves. Like, she was wearing a black one, and then she changed to a red scarf. This, this becomes important later. Dorothy then drives Conrad to the hospital with Pam. They get him there. And they're in the waiting room while he's, like, being treated, being looked over by the doctors and stuff. Pam and Dorothy are sitting next to each other waiting in the waiting room. The doctors tell Conrad that it looked like he'd been bitten by a black widow spider. Oh, my God. Yep. Which sounds very, like, what the fuck, how? But then also I'm like, well, I've seen black widows before. Yeah. I could have fucked with them and gotten bit. So it's not that, like crazy as in this is so rare but it's just weird it is i mean i've seen them and i'm like oh hell no it's really scary when you see something that little that's that lethal do you remember the black widow spider that lived on the like rose bush by the door at mama's no well it wasn't on the rose bush it was under one of the rocks maybe it was just me that found it i don't know i was however old playing with the rocks we had that like lined the flower bed and there was a black Black widow widow spider and i was like that's scary because i was also one of those like three to five year old kids it's like i'm really interested in arachnids if you call them insects i will cut you and i can only reach your knees you are still like that, except for the reach the knees part. I know. I'm like, I could reach <laughs> higher up than that. I may be 5'9", but I can, I can reach, I could probably reach up to a 6'4 man's eyes. I'm just like, to do what? Gouge them out? I don't know. <laughs> if the need arises, you go for the eyes, you go for the groin, and the solar plexus, and the kidneys. What are solar plexus? They're um, the muscles on the front of someone, basically like below your nipples, um, above your stomach. Oh, so like your diaphragm area? Yeah. So if you punch someone or like hit someone real hard in the solar plexus, it'll like knock the wind out of them. And that's a place for like, or it gives you an opportunity to escape. And that is self-defense brought to you by Blood and Wine. And those are probably tips that Dorothy learned in her karate lessons. So doctors tell Conrad he got bit by a black widow spider and they prescribe him medicine. And it's about 11 p.m. when they discharge him because I guess being bit by a black widow spider, they're like, oh, here's a couple shots. Here's some medicine. Here's a script. You're good. Yeah. Only takes like an hour. Well, I feel like you just need the antivenom. Like there's a cure. You just have to get to the hospital in time. I know. I'm just surprised that the meeting was at 9 p.m. and he's being discharged at 11 Like, okay, work. So he is sitting with Pam, filling out the prescription, going over paperwork. And Dorothy's like, yo, I'm going to go get my car and pull it up to like the lobby doors. Because Conrad's still like real weak and sick and stuff. So they're not going to have him walk all the way out to the parking lot. So she goes out to get the car. I don't like where this is going. So Pam and Conrad, they're waiting for Dorothy just inside the hospital's front door. And after a couple minutes, they step outside because they're like... Parking lot's not that big. Come on, Dorothy. And when they do, they see Dorothy's car speeding off with its, like, brights on. And it leaves the parking lot. And they're, like, waving their arms. They're like, Dorothy, we're over here. You know, at the sign that says hospital entrance where you left us. Uh, But the car just keeps on going. So Pam and Conrad, 
they're waiting at the hospital. They wait for another two hours because they're like, you know what? I bet she got some sort of emergency news about Sean. That That's the only thing they can think of, of why would Dorothy, What what is something that Dorothy would learn that would make her say, oh, fuck everyone else. I'm driving the hell out of here. And it's if something was wrong with her son. If there was an emergency at home, she's not going to take the time to run into the hospital and be like, hey, guys, quick update. My son's choking. Got to go to mom and dad's. She's going to piece the fuck out and be like, I'll fi- I'll come back for y'all later. I find it interesting that they waited that long because this is like, what, 1980? So like before cell phones? Yeah. So how would she have found anything out? I have no idea. Her car was a... 1973 Toyota station wagon. So I don't know if car phones were a thing in 1980 yet or just in the ADs, but her car certainly did not have one. It's a 73 Toyota station wagon. Like it's got the wood panel sides. There is no car phone in that. So I don't know, but maybe in their heads, they're like, well, while we were filling out paperwork, maybe um, a doctor at the front desk or something her parents called him and he went outside to the parking lot. We just like didn't see. That's a possibility. It's it, This is really weird. Yeah. It's also kind of fishing for some explanation because they don't really have any explanation right now. So after waiting for two hours, they're like, okay, something is not right here. Let's call Dorothy's parents. And they do. And they hadn't seen Dorothy either. They were like, wait, wasn't she at the hospital with y'all? And so as soon as they find out, okay, she sped away from the hospital. Her parents have not seen her. She did not go home for her son. Something is not right. That is not Dorothy. So they called the police. But not long after they called the police, at 4.30 a.m., Dorothy's station wagon was found burning in an alley in Santa Ana. Oh, my God. How far away is that? It's about 10 miles from the hospital. So it's not that far. Oh. Um, but they find the car just, I think when they find it, it's like on fire, yeah. like a roaring fire car sitting in an alley. But Dorothy's not in it. It's just the car. Well, I'm glad she's not in it. Me too. But this is where things start to get, start to go from really confusing and really weird to really confusing and really weird. About a week after Dorothy disappeared... Her mom received a very strange phone call, and the caller asked Vera, who's her mom's name, he asked if she was related to Dorothy, and Vera's like, yeah, and the caller just goes, I got her, and then hung up. And this is about at the same time when police are investigating her case, when they're learning about all of these calls that Dorothy would get at work in the weeks before her disappearance. Dorothy had even told a co-worker that this caller watched her every move. And he would describe specific details of her life to her. So that that was the thing that convinced her, like, oh, these are real. This isn't a prank. This isn't some guy just being weird. This guy watches me and, like, knows things. And these calls, they didn't end when she disappeared. And this call her mom got was not the first one. Every Wednesday for four years, the phone would ring at her mom's house, and it was this same unidentified man calling her mom and harassing her. Usually the calls would happen when her mom was home alone, 
And he would either ask for Dorothy and say, like, is Dorothy there? Or he'd tell Dorothy's mom that he'd killed her and she'd been held captive and he murdered her. Four years? Four years. So about a month after Dorothy disappeared in June of 1980, the Santa Ana Registrar, which is a newspaper there, it ran a story about Dorothy Scott's disappearance. And on that same day they ran the story, the newspaper editor got an anonymous phone call. And the caller told the editor that Dorothy was my love. I caught her cheating with another man. She denied having someone else. And I killed her. And the caller knew things that had not been released by the police or the media. Things that they had not told anyone. Like the fact that Dorothy had changed her scarf when she was at her house on the way to take Conrad to the hospital. But how did, how did a lot of people know that? Nobody did. Well, I know, but that's there has to be at least one other person that knows she changed her scarf in order for that not to just be a made-up story. Well, I mean, like, Conrad and Pam, who were with her, know. And then her family knows, because she changed her scarf when she was at their house on the way to the hospital. Gotcha. And that was one of the details they told police. Like, oh, she's wearing a black scarf. She was wearing a red one earlier today, but she changed it. And then also the fact that Conrad had specifically had a black widow spider bite. So because the caller knew these things, they're like, okay, Dorothy had to tell him these things. Mm, Tell him or he was just that much of a stalker. Yeah, or he was following them the whole time. The caller then told the editor that Dorothy had called him from the hospital. But Pam, the friend who was with Dorothy, who was like, went to the hospital with them, and then the entire time Conrad's getting checked down, is sitting in the waiting room with Dorothy, said that Dorothy never left her side and never called anyone. My God, so he was there. Yeah. So now we flash forward to August 6th of 1984, four years after Dorothy disappeared. That was when construction workers found her body. She was found just about 30 feet off of Santa Ana Canyon Road. And they only found her pelvis, skull, and two thigh bones and her arm. Oh my god, so they only found her bones? And and parts of them? Yeah, well, all of her bones were charred. And (gasps) she was found next to the bones of a dead dog. But police thought that the charring wasn't that her body was set on fire. But a brush fire had run through the area about two years before. And so they thought that's where the charring came from. But that meant that she'd been there for at least two years. But also what they found at the scene were one of her rings and her watch. And her watch, I guess, also had a day thing on it. Because it was stopped at 12.29 a.m. on May 29th. So literally just maybe an hour after she was seen driving out of the parking lot of the hospital. This is one of the things that always stumps me because, like, what happened that made her watch stop? Because watches don't stop, like, when your heartbeat does. So it's like, it must have... I always assume it means it was struck on something. But, but like, that has to be... It's just weird to me that there are so many cases where it's like, the watch stopped at this time, so that's when something was happening. I know. It always makes me go back to the Oklahoma City bombing 
and all of the clocks in the office building that stopped at 902 when the bomb went off. But see, that one, no, no, that's what I'm saying. Like, that I totally get. And while, like, yes, when uh, someone's watch or something stops, there's a traumatic event. But I just find it interesting because... We never talk about like the all the others where it's like, and they were wearing a watch that was still going. It had the correct time. I know it was the solar one, and well, but I mean, to me, what that tells me is she was probably like beaten or something. They don't really go into her cause of death, though. They may not but... have known if they just found bones. Well, and she had to be identified through dental records. Wait, when did they? Oh, because they found her skull. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Like, they honestly may not know her cause of death. So, after the newspaper ran an article about discovering Dorothy's body, her mom, Vera, she got another of these strange phone calls. And the caller asked her, is Dorothy home? And then just hung up. Throughout the years when these calls were happening, because they were happening basically every Wednesday. So, they at some point, the police and everyone knew... Tomorrow's Wednesday, we're expecting another call. And so they tried to set up tracing stuff, but the caller always managed to hang up before a trace could be completed, before they could actually find where this is coming from. They were probably privy to the time that it takes to trace Mm -hmm. a call, because that is something that, I don't know, you see it like in TV and movies and whatnot, where it's like, keep them on the phone, keep them on the phone, we're tracing it. But to this day... Dorothy's case remains unsolved, and it is just mystery after mystery, and we really do not know what happened to Dorothy, who this caller was, because I'm I'm pretty sure whoever was stalking her and calling her, like, that that's the killer. Yes. But who that was, or why, or even if there is a why, because it could have been someone who had gone into the shop to buy a lava lamp and she was he saw her at a desk become obsessed with her and started stalking her i mean literally the why could be something as seemingly small as that like a non-event kind of thing yeah but the identity of that person or really what happened nobody knows i mean i think that whoever it was probably was watching them maybe followed them to the hospital Maybe got into Dorothy's car and waited for her. So when she got back to her car, you know, he was in there and was like, okay, you know, drive and made her drive out of there and killed her. That's my theory. This is one of the weirdest cases I think I've ever heard. Because it's like, there, there are so many different things. And it's like on the night that her friend gets bit by a black widow, which is something that's really weird and uncommon... She mm-hmm. also gets kidnapped and murdered. Like, what? I know. Like, is it, are we looking at something that like, oh, this friend just happened to be gardening earlier that day and got bit? Or are we looking at like full on conspiracy level? This killer put a black widow in this coworker's car, knowing that Dorothy's close to Conrad and would take him to the hospital or something. Like, at what level of that are we looking at because we really have no idea no no we have no clue but that is the murder of dorothy jane scott so Brittany, what is your unsolved mysteries case your what is your unsolved case you're telling me about today telling all of us about not just me you know yours 
is really crazy, but yeah. uh, so is mine. I'll be talking about the murder of Rhonda Henson. So the sources I used, also an article from the Unsolved Mysteries wiki, an article on the website for the Burke County Sheriff's Office, an article in the New Herald by Sharon McBrayer, and then also an article on Reddit called Who Killed Rhonda Henson? Rhonda Henson was 19 years old in the winter of 1981. She recently graduated from high school in Valdez, North Carolina, and she'd recently started a job as a clerical worker for a local steel company. When she was in high school, Rhonda was pretty popular. She was an expert tennis player. She had a lot of really close friends. But just a few weeks after she graduated, she started behaving really weird, not like herself. She used to be pretty comfortable driving by herself, but then she started asking her dad, Bobby, to go with her on trips out of town. Like anytime she had to go a fair distance, she asked her dad to go with her. That's weird because I feel like you would almost think the opposite, like graduating high school, you'd see someone being like more independent and like trying to branch out more. Exactly. And like on one of these trips together, she told her dad that she had something to tell him and that it was bad. Like, I need to tell you something. It's not good. And he asked her to tell him like what's going on. And she was like, I I don't know. I got to think about it. And what? she never explained to him what was going on. You could tell she was grappling with something in her mind. And like she didn't know if she wanted to talk to him about it or not. And ended well, up deciding not to. I mean, it makes sense. I can definitely understand and have been in the same situation and mindset of someone where the act of being like, hey, I need to tell you something, like, that is all of the energy that you have that you can expend on the subject is making that ask for help kind of thing. Yeah, but the actually asking, you're not ready for that yet. Exactly. So her mom, Judy, also had a really strange encounter with Rhonda. They had a weird conversation where Rhonda asked her if it was ever okay to be in a relationship with a married man. Judy said, no, that's not okay because it ends in people getting hurt. No matter how that pans out, someone gets hurt. Which I'm like, damn, Judy. That's such a good and such a mom answer. Like that, I've never seen Gilmore Girls really, but I feel like that's a Lorelai answer. Yeah. Of like, I'm not going to ask. I can tell you're not ready to divulge details. I know there's more. This is what I'm going to say. Yeah, it's one of those answers where, like, it's not this flat out, like, uh, duh, yeah, of course that's bad. It, she's like, you know, no matter how this pans out, someone gets hurt. Judy did not have any idea why Rhonda was asking this question. That was as far as the conversation went. She didn't know if Rhonda was asking for herself, maybe asking for a friend. It, mm. it was very, you know, because, like, think about it. She's 19 years old. Maybe she has a friend that's hanging out with this married dude, and she's like, I mean, is that is that okay? Well, I mean, I can totally see, like, you know, if her best friend Tanya is hooking up with this married guy, and she's like, I hate this. You know, how do I, how do I say this is wrong? How do I express my feelings? I'm also like, my mom is my person I go to with these things. So, mom, is this okay? 
okay? Like, is this ever okay? Should I feel how I feel about this? Right. So Rhonda's been acting pretty strange. And on the night of December 22nd, 1981, she went to her first office Christmas party. So she had graduated that year. This is that first Christmas party of her new job. And she's having a great time. And around midnight, she and two of her friends left the party to go home. Damn, an office party that goes till midnight? Clearly, you haven't worked in many offices. I mean, I have, but we just have hours during working hours. Except, okay, I've had two kinds of office Christmas parties. Ones that are like, okay, everyone, at 2.45 until 3.45, we have conference room 7. And that's where we're doing our Christmas party. And then I've had ones that are like, guys... We rented out the Seattle Aeronautics Museum. We have catered, like, waiters that come around with, like, goose liver pate. And I'm like, I'm just here to get drunk on company dime. (laughs) I mean, that's literally why we all go to holiday parties. Don't anyone try to tell me any differently. I mean, that and to see Jen from payroll get tarned. Because she (laughs) deserves it. All the best stories come from holiday parties. So... Rhonda went to her first. About 12.30 is when she dropped off her friends and she starts the 10-mile drive back to her house where she did still live with her parents. At about 1 o'clock in the morning, Judy, like, wakes up really suddenly from a very sound sleep. She had, like, this, this weird dream, premonition, something that didn't feel right. And she felt like Rhonda had been hurt, uh, maybe killed in a car accident. And Bobby wakes up around the same time and he decides to turn on his police scanner because I guess, you know, they've got their alarm clock. They've got their police scanner. There you go. I mean, you know, you say that, but I'm also I definitely have an app that is the Austin police scanners. Like, I don't I don't really use it that much because I have the citizen app and dear God, that scares me enough. It does. I deleted it. So, like I said. Bobby turns on the police scanner, and they heard there had been a homicide. And the victim was Rhonda. Rhonda's car had been discovered on Mineral Springs Mountain Road, which is one of the exits, about a half a mile from her home. Oh, so she was almost home. She was almost there. The driver's side door of her beige Datsun 210 was open, and just a few feet away, her body was found in a ditch, and she was dead. Oh, wait, but you said a homicide, not a car accident. A car accident is just what her mom had a dream about, but police scanner said this was a homicide. Yeah, it said homicide. So the vehicle was still running, and apparently it was, it like rolled backwards across the opposite lane and like into the ditch. Rhonda was laying on her back, her arms placed at her side, deliberately. She had been killed by a single bullet fired from a high-powered rifle. The bullet entered the Datsun through the trunk. It continued through the back seat, went through the driver's seat, entered Rhonda's back, and it pierced her lung and her heart. Oh my god. Okay, when you said high-powered rifle, yeah. Yeah. Also, that's such a specific angle, because I would... I would imagine in, like, a car, a gunshot from somewhere else, you know, from behind to hit someone's heart would be, like, through the back windshield. But, like, through the trunk 
That's a low angle. It's it's interesting. Yeah. Like when you think about like you're saying the trajectory of that, it had to have been angled up. Yeah, like a fucking sniper laying in the ditch kind of thing is literally the only thing I can think to picture that angle. Like waiting for her to drive past and assassinating her, not just shooting. There were a lot of questions around Rhonda's death. A lot of medical opinions felt that she would have to have been rendered incapacitated after being shot, but her body was found outside the vehicle. So the question is, did the assailant then go to her vehicle after the shot, however it was done, and pull her body from the car? Police believed at first that her murder was a random act of violence until the investigation revealed that she may have actually known who her killer was. Okay, explain. Well, her family did not believe that she would have stopped her car for a stranger. She was not the type of person that would stop for anyone. So she had to have known who they were. And then maybe she was shot as she drove away. Okay, that that is a lot more believable than my sniper hiding in the ditch waiting for her to drive by theory. I don't know. It's still not, I don't know, it, it's still weird, but it could make more sense of like her stopping and being like, Billy, what are you doing on the side of the road? Him being like, hey, you know, walks at midnight, see ya, and then shooting her or whatever the fuck happened. As opposed to sniper in the gravel. Did you what? What name did you call her? I oh, I called him Billy. Billy. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you said Millie, and I was like, her name's Rhonda. You can't like make up a new name for her. <laughs> no, I I was being her, being like Billy. What are you doing? Got it. I'm following. We're good. In the weeks prior to her murder, not only is she behaving strangely, her parents also noticed that she was suffering from insomnia. She started getting up in the middle of the night and taking showers, and she told her mom that she felt dirty. According to police, this is usually a behavior of someone who has been sexually abused, where they feel the need to clean themselves. Yeah, that, um, I mean, been there, that's where my mind went to. That's exactly what it seems to be, and it also suggested that she was under some kind of pressure. Police also uncovered evidence that suggested that Rhonda was being stalked by someone on the night of her death. Between 12.15 and 12.30, a witness drove under the Interstate 40 bridge on Mineral Springs Mountain Road, which that's the exit she was found. And this witness observed a blue GM Chevrolet facing in a northerly direction with two white males inside. The car was parked next to the same off-ramp that Rhonda ended up taking, and this was just about 30 minutes before Rhonda was shot and 200 yards from where her body was found. So it's right in the area, and these two men are just, like, sitting in the car. So basically, they're sitting there waiting at the exit, seeing everyone that exits, waiting. Yeah. And then later that evening, another witness, who was also traveling down I-40... He passed a similar blue vehicle, and he said there was one man behind the wheel. The vehicle was speeding away from the site that would later be where Rhonda's body was found. And this man, the witness, he continues down the road, and he saw Rhonda's vehicle at the same spot where her body would be found. He said that he saw her slumped over the steering wheel with an unidentified man standing at the front driver's side door. 
So it's like, like you said, he saw the car with one man. Then he goes and sees Rhonda and the other man and her car. And she's slumped over. But this witness, he was not able to get a close look at either of these men. And he just assumed that it was a drunk couple. And he just continued driving. I mean, I I can see how that is what you would assume seeing that situation. I know. Like, I mean, I hate that he could have seen something really important. But yeah, it's midnight. It's holiday season. People are having Christmas parties. Like, you know, that could have been what it was. And I also know that if I'm on the interstate and, you know, driving 70 miles an hour, there is very little that I'm going to stop for. There is very little that I'm going to feel is important enough for me to see and also is in a safe enough situation for me to slow down my car safely, pull over and stop and do something. And try to help. Yeah. Yeah. So the police also really felt like this witness saw something really important, and he just wasn't able to really remember. So he agreed to go under hypnosis to see if he could remember any of those subconscious things. Okay. See, I am someone who is such a skeptic when it comes to, like, hypnosis and stuff. Like, yes, I fully believe and know that like hypnosis can happen not necessarily in the way of like when i say corn you cluck like a chicken when you're awake and then anytime they hear the word corn they become a chicken like no but i also know that your subconscious and things like that you can become really susceptible to any kind of leading questions and stuff influence so yeah yeah like being under hypnosis and some being like okay So you saw these men get out of the car. And then, yes, in your mind, you did. Regardless of what you actually did see. You know, when you're fucking with your subconscious and you're fucking with basically creating memories, that, I don't know, it's, I am just like, that, how reliable is that as an investigative tool? Because, you know, it's so easy to accidentally plant things and create these memories that may not have necessarily been what you're trying to get. Um, That's exactly what my thought is too, because how reliable is this information and how much is this going to hold up in court when it was discovered under hypnosis? I mean, exactly. How many juries are going to be sitting there and then the, you know, defense attorneys like, and then we put him under hypnosis and this is what he told us. How many juries are going to be sitting there being like, this is when we're going to get the facts. Or we're going to be there being like, this is some witchcrafty bullshit. Acing all cluck like a chicken. Like, like the general, like, societal thought of hypnosis is the kind of magician trickery and stuff. Like, right. is that even going to be something that people care about? Right. While he was under hypnosis, though, he described the car leaving the scene as a blue Chevrolet. It was a 70s model with a messed up front end and gray primer. He described the man that was next to Rhonda's car as seemingly between 5'10 and 6 foot, and he had medium build and dark brown hair. That is such a specific height. Well, he was within this 2 inch range. I know. The witness also recalled seeing another vehicle parked down the road from where Rhonda's vehicle was found. 
This car was black or possibly dark blue. It was a Trans Am, and some believe the car was the one that was driven by the killer. Several latent fingerprints were found on Rhonda's driver's side door. Investigators believe that these fingerprints belong to the killer, but the prints have never been identified. But they do have the prints. They do. Just no matches as of yet. Okay. Additionally, foreign DNA was recovered from Rhonda's sweater, but this also has never matched anyone. So there's a lot of theories. What went down? How did this this bullet make this such odd trajectory and kill Rhonda? Literally, what the fuck happened? I know, because again, I'm still thinking that... You know, even if it's someone who was, like, standing on the side of the road, she had just, like, stopped to say hey or help them or whatever and drove away. It's still such a low and upward angle. It is. It's not like she's driving this, like, lifted pickup that's high off the ground. But also, I have to wonder, because they found DNA on her sweater, is this going to be yet another one of our cases we do that winds up being solved through, like, familial DNA. I don't know. There are a lot of theories as to what happened to Rhonda. One of the first is maybe this was potentially a jealous lover. Some really do wonder if Rhonda was seeing a married man based on the questions that she asked her mom. It may have just been about a friend. And also, none of her friends ever suggested that she was cheating on her boyfriend with anyone. So there's really no evidence to go on in either way. However, her boyfriend's alibi in the case was not reported in the media, and neither was whether or not he owned a rifle similar to that used to fire the fatal shot. So we don't know even what her actual boyfriend was doing that night. I mean, yeah, but honestly, a guy in North Carolina owning a high-powered rifle, yeah, Okay, cool. I'm sure you can find like 3 million of them. It's North Carolina. There's a lot of like hunting and stuff. Also, I kind of get where they're going though, because basically the main points of evidence it sounds like we have to go on is she had a secret she was struggling with. Maybe it involved her being involved with a married man. It sounds like there was a sexual assault involved. And just her in general, she was struggling and, you know, something big and impactful had happened to her. Something. So this is kind of the general train of thought that my mind wanders to is like a jealous lover type of thing. But it's also so much based on conjecture. Right. Another theory is that it was simply a mistaken identity. The mention of these two men waiting in the car, parked, you know, further down the road, this brought out some suggestions of an organized hit, and that perhaps Rhonda was mistaken for someone else in the dark as she drove her car by these guys. This is reinforced by expert testimony as to the difficulties of making this specific shot that killed her, just like we have been talking about because of the incline of the road and the incline of the shot the darkness at that time, and the distance. So there are like so many variables in there that they think it could have been a, a hit yeah, and that she was not the intended target. I mean, it. yeah, it just, it sounds like a sniper and it does not sound like a 19-year-old woman is 
gonna be the victim of a sniper unless it's some kind of mistaken identity. Right. There was also talk that Rhonda had borrowed a friend's car to drive home. So there is the possibility that she left her car at a friend's house and then they took the friend's car to the party. They drove back to the friend's house and then Rhonda picked up her car. So it's like she may have been driving her friend's car to and from the party. I don't know why they didn't just take hers. But the question remains like, why did she do that? Why did she feel the need to drive someone else's car? And did this lead someone else to thinking she was a different person? Maybe. I mean, I don't know that. I feel like that's one of those things that is more easily explained of like young people being like, we'll take my car to the party. I know. Because this one, I think, is a little bit of a stretch, like that part of it. The next theory is about a traffic stop. So Rhonda's car actually had the driver's side window rolled down when it was found. And the theory was that she had pulled over for someone, rolled down the window to talk to them. And a lot of people believe that she only would have done this if someone was dressed up as law enforcement or had mocked up some type of checkpoint. Like, We know that there are, like, drinking checkpoints that happen sometimes in cities, Mm -hmm. especially around the holidays and, like, when people are going to parties, except not this year. um, But when people are going out, there are roadblocks. Yeah. So maybe it was a fake roadblock. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I would imagine, though, that one of the other drivers would have seen that. But I guess there's not a lot of people taking this exact same exit, so you don't know. I don't know. This one feels like a stretch to me. But it, it, it's one of those cases that's like there's not a ton of detail in general. So kind of everything both feels like a stretch and not a stretch. It, that is true. The last theory is that this was an accident. This theory concludes that Rhonda may have simply died by accident from a stray bullet fired by a hunter or someone nearby that hit her vehicle and freakishly took the trajectory it did to kill her. Proponents of this theory point to the case of Nancy McEwen back in 1967, who was killed while driving by a ricochet from a shot fired by a man on a boat nearby who was doing target practice. So I know the specific angle and all of the different pieces of metal and fabric and everything that this bullet had to go through to kill Rhonda. So you cannot rule out the possibility that this was just an accident. That's, I mean, that's fair. The only thing that makes me question that is, are hunters really shooting beside the interstate past midnight? But I don't know. Because I know, like, in general, most animals are most active late at night. So maybe. And also... Lots of people don't abide by, like, the general rules when it comes to hunting. So just because most people don't hunt at midnight does not mean that there's someone who's not going to be like, I'm going to go give me a deer at midnight. Right. I feel like the thing for me that makes this one seem a little weird, but again, I can't discount it, is that she was pulled out of the vehicle. Like, she wasn't in the vehicle, and this type of shot would have absolutely killed her. If it went into her heart, she's not going to be able to get out of the car. But 
And that doesn't mean that this hunter didn't realize what they did, try to save her, realize there was no hope, and run away. Like, yeah, that's a that's a really good point. And also, we have talked about people that suffer such intense injuries that you would imagine. How do you do anything but die right then and there? Who somehow adrenaline or what are able to crawl a certain distance? Yeah, but some of those are are different in the sense that they were not shot in the heart. Yeah, shot through the heart with a high-powered rifle. I don't know how you're you don't just die instantly, but you you saying you know the hunter being like, oh fuck, what have I done? And pulling her out and then never like coughing up to the crime. That I could a hundred percent see that. Totally a possibility because again there were fingerprints and foreign DNA found. And if this person has never been in the system, they're not going to come up. Yeah. Throughout the years, hundreds of people have been interviewed by investigators. The file on the Henson murder has thousands of documents, and it's, at this point, filling multiple filing cabinets. There's a lot of evidence in this case. Potential suspects and witnesses have been polygraphed. Psychics have been called in to assist. And the crime scene evidence has been analyzed and reanalyzed and looked at this way and that way. This case first aired on November 15th, 1989 on Unsolved Mysteries. And and to this day, Rhonda's murder remains unsolved. After it aired, investigators were really hoping to gather new information. They flew to Los Angeles and they fielded telephone calls immediately after the episode aired. The leads that developed from the phone calls, they were all dead ends. Recently, there has been some speculation that Rhonda's ex-boyfriend and a friend may have been involved in the murder, but this theory is not confirmed. It's just another theory. Her family and investigators are still searching, and it's been 39 years. Shit. She would be... She could be a grandmother today. There are so many of those missed moments in her life and i know that is one of the things that plagues her family that not only do they not know what happened but she was robbed of so much she was so young i know i mean i think about it and i'm like i don't really feel like my life as a person person really started until college and after i know i mean like Yes, I was obviously a person when I was, like, in elementary school and into high school and stuff. But the experiences that make you who you are and the things that define you as a person, I feel like so much of that is developed into your 20s. And she was robbed of all of that. Yeah, that is the case of Rhonda Henson. I hate this one. I hate how unsolved it is and how crazy and varied the theories are and how every single one of them could be legit yeah wow well i mean shit talk about cliffhangers for 2020 yep um some unsolved cases yeah cliffhangers abound y'all 
And if you enjoyed this episode, if you enjoyed these cases, thank you all so much for listening, for tuning in, for staying until now. But if y'all really loved us, make sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you're listening to us on. If it has a rating feature, make sure to give us those five stars. Let us know what you loved. And yeah. While you're at it, be sure to like and follow us on social. We're on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Thank you guys so, so much for listening to us this year. It has been one hell of a 2020, and I know you guys are just as ready as we are to get out of this year. I mean, we absolutely could not have made it through 2020 without y'all. So, again, thank y'all so much for staying here, sticking with us, and letting us into y'all's lives. And with that, this is Blood and Wine, signing off for 2020. XOXO. Bye, you guys, and have a happy, happy new year. Bye!